You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're beginning our study of theology today by considering why you should be interested in what the Word says. Dr. Spencer, I'm guessing that at least some people are wondering about the title of this series, What Does the Word Say? Why was that name chosen? That name was chosen because the purpose of these podcasts is to examine what God himself says we should believe and what he says about how we should live. But in order to know what God says, we need to turn to the Bible, which is the very word of God. Therefore, the name is short for what does the word of God say, which is equivalent to asking what does the Bible say. In other words, these podcasts are going to cover systematic theology, which is simply the study of what the entire word of God says about any particular subject. For a lot of people today, the Bible doesn't seem particularly relevant. Why should they care about what the Bible says? There are several answers that could be given to that question. Uh, Some people, of course, would say the Bible is only of interest because it's great literature and there are many allusions to it in modern literature, art, and even in our language. For example, when we say that the writing is on the wall or there's a fly in the ointment or we tell someone to go the extra mile, these expressions all come from the Bible. And so many universities have a course called The Bible is Literature, or something similar. Right, but there's also a far more important reason why everyone should be concerned about what the Bible says. The Bible claims to be the very Word of God. It tells us that in the beginning, God created this universe, including all living beings, and it tells us that in our natural state, we are estranged from Him, and therefore we need to be reconciled to Him. It also tells us that there's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. And it tells us that so long as we remain estranged from God, we are headed for hell. But, praise God, it also tells us what we need to do to be saved. In other words, to be reconciled to God and admitted into heaven. I agree that that's of utmost importance. But a lot of people are going to say that the Bible has been outdated by what we know now to be true from science. I mean, scientists now say that the universe started with the Big Bang a little less than 14 billion years ago and that all living things are the result of natural processes, that is, evolution. So many people would argue we don't really need God anymore, do we? I think we absolutely do need God to explain the universe. In fact, I think that modern science provides us with tremendous evidence for the existence of God. I'm not saying that you can prove the existence of God or that true saving faith is founded on external evidence, But I am saying two things. First, true biblical saving faith is perfectly consistent with a proper understanding of modern science. And secondly, atheism is not. In fact, it's hard for me to understand how an intelligent, well-educated person can be an atheist, given all we know about the universe and about life. I just don't think it's intellectually tenable to be an atheist anymore. It takes far more faith than I have. Why do you say that? I say that for a number of reasons, but the four most important are, first, that without God, you simply cannot explain the existence of this universe. If there ever was a time when absolutely nothing existed, then nothing would exist now. There's a Latin phrase that expresses this basic tenet of philosophy, ex nihilo nihil fit, which simply means out of nothing, nothing comes. And since we have very strong evidence that this universe is not eternal, but had a beginning, the obvious question is, Where did it come from? And the answer is that there must be something or someone who is eternal and who created this universe. I always find it interesting that most people want something to be eternal, not someone. 
What's your second reason? Well, the second reason I have for saying that I don't find atheism to be intellectually tenable is that it's essentially impossible for life to be created by purely random processes. We now know enough about the nature of living organisms to be able to calculate some of the relevant probabilities, and the numbers are staggering. Let me just give you a very quick summary. Proteins are the basic building blocks of life, and proteins are made up of a sequence of amino acids. And there are 20 different amino acids that comprise proteins, but an unimaginably small percentage of the possible combinations form functional proteins. For example, a relatively small protein might comprise a sequence of about 150 amino acids, and roughly only one sequence out of every 10 to the 164th power of sequences forms a functional protein. 10 to the 164th power is meaningless to most of us non-scientist types. Well, trust me, Mark, that number is very hard for engineers and scientists to grasp, too. But let me try and explain it. First, 10 to the 164th power means a 1 followed by 164 zeros. As one example, the odds of winning the Powerball lottery on any given ticket are about 1 in 292 million. So getting a working 150 amino acid long protein by a random combination of these 20 amino acids is less likely than winning the Powerball lottery 19 times in a row when buying just one ticket each time. Well, that certainly sounds unlikely. But given billions of years and all the possible planets in the universe, doesn't it in fact become quite likely? No, not at all. First, generating a single functional protein is a long way from having a living organism. It's estimated that the simplest possible living cell would require at least 250 proteins, and if we ignore for the moment that these would have to be 250 very specific proteins, which, by the way, is a lot to ignore, and just ask how likely it is to get any 250 functional proteins by random combinations of amino acids, we have to multiply that number, 10 to the 164th power, by itself 250 times. And the result is that you have one chance in 10 to the 41,000th power of getting those 250 proteins. That number is a 1 followed by 41,000 zeros. Okay, now that number is truly incomprehensible. Can you do anything to put it into perspective? I don't know if it's possible to put a number that large in perspective, but I'll do the best I can. Scientists have estimated that there are about 10 to the 80th electrons, protons, and neutrons in the visible universe. This number is unimaginably larger than that. So finding one particular electron out of all the subatomic particles in our universe would be massively more likely than this. That's a little hard to wrap your mind around when you look out at the night sky and try to think of all the protons, neutrons, and electrons out there. And you're saying it's vastly more likely to find one particular electron out of all of those than it is to get 250 functional proteins by random combinations of amino acids. Right, and not only is it more likely, but the comparison is so far off I hesitate to even give it because it's misleading. But it's hard to come up with examples that aren't misleading. In fact, if you take all of those 10 to the 80th particles and make each of them a universe, so you have 10 to the 80th universes, and each of those has 10 to the 80th particles, you still only have 10 to the 160th power of particles. So it would still be unimaginably more likely to find one specific electron out of all the electrons, protons, and neutrons in those 10 to the 80th universes than it would be to get 250 functional proteins by random combinations of amino acids. 
Or perhaps it will help some people to point out that one chance in 10 to the 41,000th power is less likely than winning the Powerball lottery 4,842 times in a row, buying just one ticket each time. Now you've gone completely past the bounds of my imagination. And mine as well. To, to talk about these kinds of numbers at all gets very hard when you can't see them written down, even for those who like math and work with large numbers a lot. So for those who are interested, there's more information available if you go to our website, whatdoesthewordsay.org, and look at the transcript for this session. But for our purposes today, I'll just note that this number is so insanely large that if we increase the number of universes by a trillion trillion and increase the number of planets in each of those universes by a trillion trillion and make each of those universes a trillion trillion times older, we don't change the overall probability of generating the proteins needed for a single living cell by random combinations of amino acids enough to even bother mentioning. So people should not be swayed when someone says that there are billions or even trillions of inhabitable planets out there. It simply doesn't help. I must admit I didn't know just how improbable it is to have life arise by chance, like impossible. And you even have a third reason why atheism is unreasonable. Uh, the third reason is similar to the second. We've been talking about just one cell but it takes an enormous amount of information to build a living being, much of which is needed to describe how to make the proteins that we've been talking about, but there are other things as well. And that information is stored in the DNA. Now, I believe that there's plenty of evidence to support the idea of microevolution. That is, for example, that bacteria can evolve into antibacterial-resistant strains, or horses can evolve into different kinds of horses, but the idea of macroevolution, that all living organisms evolved from some prototypical life form by natural processes, is again impossible for me to believe. There's a vast gulf between horses changing size or color and how hairy they are, which just involves changes to existing characteristics, and saying that the horse is directly related to the horsefly biting his neck. The horsefly has an entirely different body plan with different complex structures like wings, there is simply no reasonable chance of both of them evolving from the same ancestor by undirected natural processes. We probably don't even need a fourth reason to put the lie to atheism, but let's hear it. The fourth reason is the impossibility of explaining the existence of volitional creatures like you and me. And by that word volitional, you just mean creatures that make real decisions, right? Right. If, if there's no God and no such thing as spirit then this universe is simply matter and energy under the rule of physical laws. Now, I don't have a big problem believing that the behavior of a fly, for example, can be explained in a purely materialistic way. The behavior of creatures as simple as flies or ants can be understood as purely instinctive. But when it comes to being able to make real choices, you have a serious problem to overcome if you assume the world is limited to mass, energy, and the physical laws of our universe. All physical laws are either purely deterministic or random. Deterministic laws are like Newton's laws, which govern, for example, the movements of billiard balls when you strike them. Randomness comes in because of quantum mechanical effects, and, for example, the decay of radioactive substances is a random process. But neither deterministic laws nor randomness, nor any combination of them, can account for a being that makes real free will decisions. I see what you mean when you say that atheism is intellectually untenable. But this leads me to ask you an important question. Does atheism's failure prove the existence of God? Is that, in other words, the basis for our faith? 
Well, certainly any argument against an atheistic worldview is simultaneously an argument in favor of a theistic worldview. But these arguments are absolutely not the basis for our faith. I don't believe you can prove the existence of God in any formal sense of the word proof. But at the same time, I want to emphasize what the Bible itself declares, which is that what we observe in nature is sufficient for us to know that God exists. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. He says that men suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie because they are in rebellion against God and his rule. In our natural state, we don't want God. We want to live as though we are the ultimate authority and judge. Yeah, I've noticed that. So what do these arguments accomplish? Well, I would say that these kinds of arguments accomplish two things. First, they help to strengthen the faith of true believers by showing that our faith is completely rational and reasonable. And second, for unbelievers, they help to bring to the fore their suppression of the truth that they know. But I'll say again that these arguments are not the basis for true saving faith. Anyone who quote-unquote comes to faith by virtue of such arguments alone has at best an intellectual assent, not true saving faith. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, he tells us that even the demons believe there's a God and they shudder. The only foundation for our faith is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, such as us, and that if we will repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. That's a perfect place to stop for today. I think you've provided some very sound reasons for why all people should be interested in finding out what the Word of God says. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will be giving part one of an outline of the Bible. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.